0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, baby.
1: Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain.
2: Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. One giant please, for mankind
1: hey everybody welcome to another episode of smart people podcast i'm chris stemp and i'm john rojas and i am one year older as of a few days ago oh that's so, right happy birthday buddy yep. so i'll let all of you listeners out there say happy birthday thank you very much i'll accept cakes and cupcakes in the mail and hey, money uh, and money, and money, obviously, but money through our Amazon widget. Look at that, plugging it already. I know,
0: seriously. Bam. What an, right e- what an easy birthday present for somebody to give you. Just go to our website at smartpeoplepodcast.com, use our Amazon widget. They could actually buy you a birthday present and have the percentage come to us. I like it already. Look at that. I like it already. Yeah, bottom left-hand corner, just
1: click on the Amazon symbol. You don't have to use the little search box, as we had to tell one of our listeners recently. Thanks, Just click on the symbol, and we're going to try and make it more visible, because it's super simple, and it's just an easy way to kick a couple bucks our way at no cost to you. Anyways, now that we got that out of the way, we can get into the meat of of today's episode. Uh, Today, we interview Bill Poundstone, William, if you want to be formal, Mr. Poundstone is best-selling author of 11 books. His book, Fortune's Formula, was Amazon editor's pick for number one nonfiction book of 2005. He's written for New York Times, The Village Voice, Esquire, Harper's The Believer, The Economist, Harvard Business Review. He's been on all these shows. He's a super bright guy, and it comes through in the interview, as you'll hear it. I mean, he he just knows a lot about a lot, and his books that he's written over the years. I don't know. They're so interesting. I think he was one of our most interesting guests, easily top three we've had.
0: That was me. That's me personally. Oh, I would agree. We, you know, brought up a bunch of different topics with him and he was just on his toes answering questions on every single one of them. And you don't find that many people that have that wealth of knowledge in so many different areas. Yeah, and I mean it's not like we do show prep with these people.
1: We just get them on and say, hey, we're gonna talk to you about what you've done, and we just throw stuff at them and see how they react. And he he nailed it. So the the interview seem might seem a little disjointed because, you know, we only have 25, 30 minutes with these people, and we with him, he had so many interesting books that I wanted to talk to him about because the concepts are crazy. He just takes everyday things that you, you would think about, but you wouldn't dive into really. And he actually dives into him. He went to MIT, he studied like physics or something. He went to MIT under a national merit scholarship, mind you. So, you know, he knows what he's doing. And we talked to him about the, uh, one of his newer books he has called priceless, which is talks about how prices are determined and things like that. We talked to him about his book, gaming, the vote, which talks about how America's voting system. Although democracy is great. We all know that. But in terms of the actual way we vote, how it could be better and, you know, things you, you don't really pay too much attention to, but you should. And he does it in an awesome way. I, I feel like I could talk to this dude for five days.
0: Oh, I agree. I wanted to keep him on the phone for, for hours. But, you know, busy guy had to get a couple questions in on each book. And the two books that caught my interest the most were the ones about Microsoft and moving Mount Fuji. And then the price one, because I was so focused on that 99 cent Apple iTunes pricing and just thought what they did turned out to be so genius with getting people to not even think about purchases. So we talked about that for a few minutes and you know he went on to expand on the psychology behind that. It's definitely one of our most
1: educational interviews. We're going to leave it at that, let you guys take a listen to Mr. Poundstone. Don't forget to visit our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. But more importantly, just kind of join us in our quest to friends and Twitter followers. Twitter where Smart People Pod. And on Facebook you can find us just Smart People Podcast. We're trying to we're trying to market this thing, keep ratcheting it up, get the world to know about us. And um, we hope you enjoy it.
0: And make sure you send Chris birthday wishes on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, you'll be a little late. Hey, it's a thought that counts.
1: <laughs> First, I really just wanted to start and ask you to, to give us a little background of um, what it is that you do, how, how it is you got to where you are. I know you're a prominent author and I really like a lot of your work, so I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit more about,
2: uh, about yourself. Yes, well, I guess I had always wanted to be a writer. I actually studied physics at MIT uh, in college, but when I got out, I I went into uh, basically uh, editing, magazine editing, and I started doing articles, and eventually I sold my my first book and have been writing books ever since. Uh, In describing the types of things I do, I've I've certainly been all over the map. I've done a lot of things, but I think uh, particularly in recent years, a lot of what I do sort of describes how little known scientific uh, ideas have really had a very broad influence on people around us on society as a whole. So if that sort of makes sense, I really like to take some idea that's incredibly important, but really no one out there knows about it and show how it really affects people in their everyday lives. So that's what I've been trying to do.
1: I noticed from just the various books you've written and things like that you don't really concentrate on one topic but like you said you take kind of large topics and explain the intricacies as if, uh, the intricacies of them is that how you
2: would kind of explain it yeah, pretty much. There's, there's like always one very strong connecting thread where everything sort of derives from something, but uh, the actual book can often treat many different walks of life, many different types of characters, many many different uh, sorts of ideas. So that's part of the fun of it, I guess, that you're able to connect all these different things to one basically simple idea. How
1: do you use your background to cover these these ideas? Do you use the background... Uh, that you got at MIT, or kind of how do you approach these things? Because I want to get into numer- you know, a couple of your books because they are fascinating. So before I do that, I just want to see how you approach it using your, you know, your experience.
2: Well, I think it's it's very important to have sort of this scientific worldview where you come into it with a certain amount of skepticism. You really do want to look at the evidence and say, is this really the way things are? Uh, because without that, you really wouldn't have a foundation for doing the, these types of books that, uh, that I do. But basically, it, it really comes down to curiosity. Uh, I mean, I've always enjoyed learning things. So with each book, it's really a lot of fun to, to sort of uh, start out in a whole new field in many cases and really learn about what's going on there.
0: Bill, I wanted to talk to you about one of your books, *How Would You Move Mount Fuji?* Where you talked about how Microsoft went about hiring their employees, you know, based on tests to see who was a creative thinker. You see stuff with Google, and Google had that thing when they went on a huge hiring spree, and they had that uh, math problem on the billboard. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with that, but do you see that more companies are starting to do this now, where they're they're looking for you know people that can can think critically as opposed to, okay, I got straight A's in school, I did this, I did that, you know, I took standardized testing very well. Do you see that as a shift from how it used to be to how it is now? What is your thought on that?
2: Yeah, it, it does seem to have been a long-term trend. And in a certain sense, I think really the, the incredibly tough job market has, if anything, uh, sort of caused it to spread even further, even to a lot of companies that before this really were not that selective. Uh, The the way this whole book came about, maybe I should explain, uh, I've always kind of been known as a person who was good with logic puzzles. So uh, a few years ago before I uh, began that book, uh, I started getting emails from friends who said they'd been on a job interview and someone asked this crazy sort of logic puzzle question. And they were basically writing me to to see if they got the right answer because they wanted to compare their answer with mine. So after I got a few of these emails and started talking to some of these people, I thought this this would be a really fun book. I mean, growing up, I really uh, admired Martin Gardner's uh, Scientific American column and all those wonderful books he wrote, many of which involved uh, the, these sort of logic puzzles and riddles and so forth. So it basically gave me an excuse to do that. But it also, uh, you know, when I looked into this, talked with people at Microsoft, at, uh, at Google, at other other companies like that, uh, I found that there is an incredibly long history of, uh, of this. I traced it back to the very earliest part uh, of Silicon Valley where you had people actually, at, you know, having job interviews where they would quiz people and, and time them with, with a stopwatch to see not only if you got the right answer, but how fast you could get the right answer. Uh, and I guess back then it just, uh, expressed this idea that, you know, it was incredibly important to find the smartest, most creative people. So they figured, you know, they're, they're engineers, they have this analytical mind view. So, so they decided that would be, be the way they did it. In recent years, though, I mean, obviously we've moved away from intelligence tests and a lot of people have also become kind of disenchanted with, with some of, uh, some of, of the formal education because everyone, you know, in Silicon Valley at least, has had this experience where they hire someone who got straight-A grades, went to Stanford or MIT or one of these really high-powered schools, uh, and still they're pretty hopeless when you actually uh, hire them. Uh, They're not necessarily good employees. It's not that they aren't smart, but somehow they just don't get along with people. They can't apply what they know to a particular novel situation. They're, They're very good at regurgitating what they learned, but not in seeing connections between what they learned and this really novel type of situation. So I think that's really one of the reasons they started doing this. And as I say, now, even with this economy, you've even got companies like Procter & Gamble and Walmart asking trickier questions than they used to, sort of emulating these companies like Microsoft and Google.
0: Now, you, you brought up the fact that, you know, some of these employees that got straight A's at Harvard and didn't end up being, you know good employees, uh, you know, a lot of these CEOs of these tech companies dropped out of college. Do you do you see that that, you know, there's any type of correlation with that type of?
2: Well, kind of a self-made entrepreneur type. Yeah, I, I think there is a big connection there actually. Uh, Bill Gates was very big on puzzles growing up and he figured, you know, you can learn more from that than you can from, you know, what you actually did in college. Uh because you know it's always hard to tell who their professor was, how much his professor helped them, uh, what what else was going on there, whether they were really inventing something on their own or just sort of following this very brilliant professor. So this is kind of an extra filter. It's another way of evaluating people. Uh and in places like Google and Microsoft, I mean, they know this you can't tell everything from this. That you know, someone might have just heard these questions. They might have read my book and know you know some of some of the questions that are being asked. Uh, it's just another way of getting information, and they like to sift together all these different sources of information. So in that sense, I think uh, there is a pretty good rationale for it.
1: All right, Bill. I wanted to move on. It's tough. I could I could talk to you all day about the the books you have out because. The things you cover are so interesting, but I want to move on to Fortune's Formula, the untold story of the scientific betting system that beat the casinos in Wall Street. Uh-huh. And I guess, you know, numerous people are going to be unfamiliar with it, but just by reading the subtitle, they're going to want to know what you discuss. So first, I want to talk a little bit about that book, see if you could fill in our listeners, and then we'll kind of dive in a little bit more.
2: Yeah, what well, that actually did uh, come from, from my college experience. Uh, When I was at MIT, Claude Shannon was uh, still alive, and he was a professor there. He's, of course, the founder of information theory that really is the basis of computers and the Internet and the whole digital world today. But there was a funny thing about him. No one ever saw him on campus. And when you asked why that was, you heard this story. It was said that he got the idea that he could use his information theory to make money in the stock market. Uh, And apparently he did make a fortune with his investments and then he kind of used that wealth to drop out of the scientific world. Uh, It was said that he basically stayed home all the time and built, you know, kind of weird machines and robots in his basement workshop. Uh, And there were also stories that, you know, people who had seen his empty office at MIT said it contained large piles of uncashed checks because he couldn't bother to come in and cash all these dividend checks or something. Uh, so just remembering that it seemed like it would be interesting to investigate that so I went to the Library of Congress and found his papers and found quite a bit about this this investing system he had, which involves something known as the Kelly Criterion, which is really what the whole book, Fortune's Formula is about. I describe it. It's named after one of his colleagues at Bell Labs, John Kelly Jr., who otherwise is not that well-known, but he's really a very brilliant and fascinating character. But at any rate, the, the Kelly Criterion is really this sort of all-purpose vetting formula that tells you when you're in a situation where you have a wager that's in your favor, how much you should stake on that particular wager if you're interested in making the most money possible in the long run. Now, that sounds like it's, it's kind of very simple and no-brainer, but actually there's some very subtle mathematical issues in there, and Kelly was the first to really uh, figure out the optimal way of betting. So uh, another plot in, in Fortune's formula is that a, a young mathematician by the name of Ed Thorpe that you probably know is the founder of card counting in blackjack uh, once met Shannon and Shannon told him, you know, this blackjack system is great, but you ought to use this this Kelly criterion to decide how much you should be betting so that even though you do have this advantage with card counting, you've got to make sure that you don't go broke before you get rich. And that's basically what this, this Kelly formula tells you how to do. So uh, Thorpe used that in the casinos and he ended up uh, starting an incredibly successful hedge fund where he used many of these same principles. So I kind of weave all that together into this story. And it, it is very, you know, a very amusing sort of story as well as telling you something about this very simple idea that's become incredibly important in a lot of different walks of life.
1: Now, do you think that because things like this have been public since, I mean, obviously your book in 2005, do you think these are all factored into the market now and are no longer completely relevant? Or do you think it's possible to use some of these strategies currently?
2: No, it is very widely used by the really sophisticated hedge fund people and so forth. But it I mean, basically, everyone uses it because it's basically a formula for telling you how to make the most out of any favorable opportunities that you find in the market. Now, the actual things that hedge fund uh, people are trading are constantly changing because you'll find, you know, you can you can make some sort of arbitrage with the S&P 500 index funds and so forth and make a lot of money that for a while. But then someone else finds it. And then that's pretty much played out. It's like you know, uh, a fishing ground that uh, that everyone is trying to fish. So you have to move on to something else. But whatever type of trade uh, you're using, you do need to use something like the Kelly formula to decide how much you're going to stake, how you're going to manage your risk. So in that sense, it's really the one thing in the hedge fund industry that really remains relevant as much as things change and as much as all this, you know, high frequency trading is making everything happen much, much faster.
1: And the other thing to go along with that is, do you think that there are still opportunities to be exploited? And again, this is talking specifically to, you know, I guess Wall Street, but investing in general and also casinos. I mean, you know, like you mentioned, there was the the card counting thing and what you talk about in Fortune's Formula. Do you think there are still things left or have we kind of reached the pinnacle of, Every edge we can find has been found, and the house has the, the edge.
2: Well, certainly card counting uh, has gotten a lot more uh, difficult. Uh, they've started using you know uh, two decks and then four decks in some places, even more than that. But th- I do know that there are still people who, who count cards and seem to be making money off it. You have to be very particular about where you go. Generally, there's a few casinos that you know decide that their market niche is that they're going to appeal to card counters so they they may have a single deck uh, uh set up there which is one reason why people will go there but yeah it, it's true i and i think it's always been true that uh that anytime there's someone is is basically giving away free money even if unintentionally people find out about it pretty quickly but it's funny uh, the last time i talked to thorpe he was telling me uh he found this new very interesting betting opportunity somewhere in the world and he didn't tell me what it was because you know he obviously wants to keep it under wraps but where you could double your money very quickly the people who run it don't know about it uh and he was working very actively on that and uh and i imagine if he's successful we will be hearing about it uh sooner or later
1: all right great i guess just moving along the list each subject is keeps getting more and more interesting but Gaming the vote, why elections aren't fair and what we can do about it. I think that obviously you wrote this in a time, you know, in 2008 is when it was published. And we had been dealing with a lot of election issues, um, I guess, you know, when Al Gore was running and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we haven't had it hasn't been as public recently, but I think it's something that happens more often than we know, you know, gaming the vote. And yeah. and who knows if things are even counted or tallied correctly, but where do you stand on that and, and how that's a problem we can fix? I mean, given the technology we have these days should allow us to, but it obviously still doesn't.
2: Yeah, well, the problem isn't even the, the technology. It's just the way that we cast and count votes. Uh, the, pro, the the way we vote normally where the person with the most votes wins, uh, in each it is one man, one vote, one person, one vote is known technically as the plurality vote because whoever has the most votes. Uh, but there's really a lot of problems with that mathematically, and that's been appreciated at least since, uh, you know, the time of the Enlightenment in the 1700s. Uh, the problem is basically spoilers. Again, with, with Al Gore and Bush and Ralph Nader, if apparently Ralph Nader took away a lot of votes from from Gore, uh, that, that that kept him from winning. Uh, And, of course, we're seeing that now in in the opposite side of the political spectrum because they've got all these independent Tea Party candidates. And even if one of these candidates takes just 1% of the vote uh, away from the Republican, uh, that, that can lead to a Democrat winning. And you can show that this really doesn't make any sense. And, I mean, if you explain it to people wherever they are on the political spectrum, they'll agree that it doesn't make sense. But the problem is, what do you replace it with? Now, there's actually... Quite a few very, you know, sensible ways of voting that are considerable improvements on what we've got. But the thing is, there's almost too many. Uh, and uh, as I say in the book, there's, there's been all this controversy among the various proponents of different voting systems Uh, and I think that really is one reason why we really haven't made the change if you could have everyone every so-called expert saying this is the way we should be voting then I think maybe you could get people behind it you could get politicians to say you know we've got to reform our voting and this is important so let's do it Uh, but instead you've got people some people saying you want uh, approval voting, some people saying you want instant runoff voting, some people you want range voting, and there's many other options. Uh, So it is so complicated that it's really hard to know what, uh, what you really should be doing. So one of the fun things in, in, in writing this book was that I got to talk with a lot of the proponents of the different voting systems, and I try my best, at any rate, to, to give the pros and cons of each of these systems so that the reader can hopefully uh, come to a conclusion.
0: I guess my, my overall question for this is going to be, do you think that we will
2: eventually be able to fix voting in the United States? That's a good question. If it does happen, and in some ways it is, uh, actually instant runoff voting has an organization behind it, Fair Vote, that is is fairly well connected. It gets a certain amount of money. And they have had uh, IRV, as it's called, instant runoff voting, being adopted by a number of local cities and municipalities. So there is a certain momentum behind that. Unfortunately, if you talk to the mathematicians, they'll tell you that instant runoff voting is a little better than what we've got now, but it's probably like the least good of the ones that are taken seriously, and other options like approval voting and, uh, and range voting are actually better yet. But, but as you say, I mean, I think that demonstrates that it is not an impossible goal to get people to change the way they vote. It's just a matter of doing uh, the groundwork of educating people, and hopefully this book will be one way of, of trying to do that.
1: Could you explain for those that don't know, and actually I'm not too familiar, but what instant runoff voting is?
2: Okay, in instant runoff voting, instead of just saying, I vote for for candidate A, you have to rank your favorite candidates, like this is my number one choice, this is my number two choice, this is my number three choice, Uh, and then they use that to decide who would win. So in other words, if your number one choice is someone who has very few votes, like say Ralph Nader in 2000, your vote would then be cast for your number two choice, and if that was Al Gore, your vote would count towards Al Gore. So uh, in situations like that, it's actually a very good way of voting. It's not so good, though, when you've got like three or more types uh, of very strong candidates. In those situations, it can be kind of uh, capricious, as you can show in certain situations. And the problem is that there are really um, sort of unintended effects of almost any way of voting. Uh, our two-party system is really an artifact of the way we vote, the plurality vote, because people know that, uh, it's basically only one of the two front runners who's gonna win, so that's why we have these two powerful parties. And I think for that reason the parties feel maybe a little threatened by by instant runoff voting by by approval voting and range voting and these other options because uh no one really knows how that would change things for our political parties for our candidates uh, if we did adopt these new ways of voting. Uh, they certainly would make our democracy more responsive but it's a little difficult to tell what they would actually mean for the political party system.
0: Have they I mean I'm sure they have but have they gone through and and run simulations you know based on instant runoff voting just to see what would occur, you know, with past elections or even, you know, a mock election.
2: Yes, uh, very definitely. In fact, that's that's a very active level uh, of research. And I, I do quite a bit of that in the book and show that uh, I believe there's about eight presidential elections where you can make an argument that the wrong candidate won. Uh, in the sense that uh, if you had been able to transfer the, the, the third-party candidates' votes to their second choice or to the one that they approved up more, uh, we would have had a different president. So it's definitely not a theoretical thing. I mean, it really does happen. You can calculate maybe in about 10 to 15% of elections. So it's, it's a pretty serious thing.
1: You talk a little bit of, in your book about what we can do about it. Have you determined or do you determine – the the best steps we can take going forward.
2: Well, I'm not sure uh, the best steps, just in terms of uh, of uh, like what you should do in terms of what politicians to talk to, what what people to talk to, whether this should be on the ballot. But there's there's very good evidence in terms of these simulations uh, that the best system of all is something called range voting, where you basically score each candidate uh, like on a scale of one to ten how much you like them but there's a certain argument to be made that uh, a simpler system called approval voting is probably for a lot of purposes almost as good and it does have the advantage of being simpler to explain to people and i think that's you know a serious consideration as well there are organizations promoting both of, of those ways of voting but uh, they don't have a whole lot of money so you know if 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 i would encourage people out there to do something i would say educate yourself on the various types of voting systems uh, and maybe think about volunteering or, or writing letters to congresspeople and so forth, maybe even sending a little money to the, some of these organizations.
1: And now I guess for the listeners that have made it this far, I want to reward everybody because your newest book titled Priceless, which is about, you know, fair value and things like that, the subtitle, The Myth of Fair Value, and how to take advantage of it, is is fascinating. I think something everybody's going to be interested in because you really dive into kind of how things are priced and why we react to prices the way we do. I mean, I know I found myself the other day searching on Amazon. I was looking for watches, and I was looking for the watch that they marked as the most expensive, yet it was priced down so much. So I found a watch that was initially marked at $1,000, priced down to seventy nine. dollars And without Mm -hmm. even caring about the watch i was like maybe i should buy that you know (laughs) and honestly Uh, and and that happened the other day and that's why i was really excited to talk to you because i kind of wanted to get a look at why does this happen and i know you you kind of go into the psychological aspect which i'm really interested in kind of behavioral psychology so it was another mm -hmm. thing i I really wanted to kind of dive into this with you
2: yeah this was really a lot of fun to research because i think you know we all can relate to this every day But they basically found that there are a set of rather simple psychological tricks that can really cause you to to change your opinion about whether something's a good price or a bad price or somewhere in between. And the one you just described where they have something like a $1,200 watch marked down to $79 or some ridiculous discount is actually something that's, that's known as advertised reference pricing. And they've done actual experiments on that and found that it has an incredibly strong effect in motivating people to buy. Now, it's not that people aren't aware that this is some sort of come on. I mean, if you ask them, they'll say they're very skeptical that it was really, you know, worth $1200 and, you know, they figure it's, you know, the price is good, maybe it's not that good. But when but that's what people say. And the thing is in these studies you have to look at what people actually do, what they choose to do with their money. And even though everyone says they don't pay attention to things like that, when you actually do the experiment, you find that people do I mean it does make a decision uh, it does motivate that decision to buy something. so that's why you see it an awful lot on amazon and, and other retailers and in fact with with the whole you know online buying now, it makes it's so easy to aggregate all this data and find out what sort of pitches work and what sort of pitches don't. So in the book, I go into a little about how they're using that data now to really, you know, concoct the perfect price, the perfect pitch. And it's really something that that we see all around us.
0: I'm not sure if anybody's ever said this before, if you've said this before, and if you have, I apologize. But I'm starting to see that 99 cents might be the new penny and the reason why I, the the reason why I say this is I was I was having a conversation with Chris earlier today. I was trying to convince him to buy an iPhone app that I really liked and he's like, Oh, I'm not paying for it because it costs money, I only get the free apps. And you know, my response was, It's ninety-nine cents. You know, I don't even blink an eye at it anymore. Where I see an app that
2: costs ninety nine cents, I'm like, Oh, I'm downloading this. I'm not that cheap. I just, <laughs> just <you know. laughs> Yeah, I, 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 there's definitely a lot of truth to that. Uh, in fact, the, the 99 cents price is, is kind of magical. Uh, there was a guy named Dave Gold who uh, ran a liquor store in Los Angeles, and he had these really cheap wines that weren't selling. Uh, so he took all the really, you know, dog wines and put them on the shelf and put a big banner over it saying, you know, Wines of the World. Anything you see here, 99 cents, and they sold out almost immediately. But the funny thing was, some of the prices he had marked down from like a twenty-nine to $0.99, cents, but others had actually been on sale for cheaper prices, like for $0.79. Cents. And even the $0.79 cents wine sold better at $0.99. Cents. So this was so amazing that he started joking to friends, you know, I ought, to, I ought to open a whole store where everything's 99 cents. Uh, and he did just that. And that really started this whole 99 cent store phenomenon. He's now got 250 stores in, in about half the country. And of course, there's all these other uh, knockoff type stores uh, also offering stuff for 99 cents. It, it is interesting, though, that there's been a, a lot of debate about whether that price really does have this, this kind of mystic impact on people. And for a long time, economists thought, no way. I mean, people are smarter than that. They know that 99 cents is essentially a dollar. So why not just say it's a dollar and and be done with it? But they started doing some actual experiments and found that not only the 99 cent price, but really any price ending in nine or 99 really does have an amazing uh, effect on people. In one of the experiments I described, some some psychologists at MIT managed to convince one of the big catalog companies to print out separate versions of their catalog with different prices and sell them uh, and send them to different subsets of their mailing list. So they'd be selling the exact same uh, product, but in one catalog, it would be selling for $34 and in another, it would be selling for $39. And what they found was that it sold better at the $39 price, even though it's more expensive. So that really shows that the, it does have a strong motivating effect. Now, that experiment doesn't necessarily explain why it has that effect, but the best guess is that we've all kind of been culturally conditioned to know that if something ends in nine or 99, that kind of implies a discount. It kind of implies that, you know, there's been competition, that they've really, you know, tried to get the best possible price. And although everyone says they're not influenced by these 99 cent prices, Again, when you look at the actual data, they do make a big difference and they do cause people to buy stuff that they wouldn't buy otherwise.
0: Do you think that it might be generationally my generation we've dealt with, you know, credit cards, debit cards, now PayPal, NFC in mm-hmm. and, and we haven't really had to deal with I guess that change currency for that long. So now when I see, you know, mm-hmm. the 99 cents, I think, oh, that's less than a dollar, I might as well go ahead and buy it because change has become, you know, a, a hassle for me. I don't carry any uh-huh. change on on my on my person. You know, I just have my credit cards or or a PayPal account. Uh-huh. Do you think that has anything to do with how we've, you know, kind of come in looking at those those prices that are in change?
2: Well, what's interesting is is how i I don't think it actually has changed that much, even as we're moving to to you know uh, all electronic transactions. I mean, in a few years, we're all going to be using our cell phones to make you know all these transactions. so really, change is probably going to become obsolete. But you see these ninety nine cent prices on the web as much as anywhere else. Again, I imagine it's just this cultural memory and, uh, and, you know, it still does have this certain potency there. In fact, uh, you know, even the, the whole idea of which stores have 99 cent prices and which don't is a big signifier. Nordstrom's makes a big deal of the fact that they do not use prices ending in 99 cents. Everything is an even dollar. Uh, and that's sort of a way of saying, you know, we're not a discount store. Uh, we have quality products here and we charge reasonable prices for them. Walmart, on the other hand, has has sort of done the opposite. You'll notice that most of their prices end in eight, like they're even cheaper than 99 cents. They'll end in like 89, or rather, uh, 98 cents. Uh, And I guess that that ties in with their whole sales pitch there. So, you know, people, and some stores actually use 99 cent prices if it's something is on sale or if it's been discontinued, something like that. So it kind of sends a message there, whether you're consciously aware of that certain code or not.
1: Now, I know, as I mentioned, you deal a lot in this book with psychology of purchasing, which in turn can be linked to psychology of how we make decisions on a daily basis. And I know most people want to sit there and believe I'm not influenced by a price tag or Ending it in 99 versus 98. Did you have any kind of aha moments where you discovered that people are susceptible to uh, pricing or it doesn't even have to do with pricing, but anything in general in terms of purchasing or decision making that you thought really stuck out in your research?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think I had aha moments almost continuously throughout the research and still do today. Uh, I remember I was choosing a cell phone plan and a lot of the different techniques they have there. There's something called flat rate bias where everyone really wants a flat rate because they don't want to think that you're charged for every text message, for every call after 5 p.m. because who knows, you know, how much you would run up your bill. But the reality is, and this has been well established by both by the phone companies themselves and by psychologists, is that most people tend to greatly overestimate their usage of these various services. So you figure, oh, yeah, I definitely need unlimited text messages. But if you look what you would pay and how many text messages you actually send, there's a pretty good chance that you would actually be better on the a la carte basis. And that's true for really a lot of these services. Uh, So that's why they make sure that they do have these flat rates, but they they generally make their best profit with the flat rates because everyone just has this sort of inborn bias that causes them to overestimate how much they're going to use. Again, there's various other tricks like that. And as you read the book, I mean, really in every chapter, you're going to see yourself many times over.
1: Well, Bill, I know we went a little over the time we mentioned, but as I said, you know, I find the books you write truly interesting and fascinating. So I appreciate you being on the show. I wanted to ask you, where would you like to lead our listeners, whether it be a website or someplace they can find your works and things like that?
2: Yes, uh, I've got a website. It's net.
1: Okay. And we'll also have on our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, we'll have a link to your website and to your book so everybody can check them out. We highly recommend it. Again, thank you so much for your time.
2: Well, thank you so much. It was fun. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. Okay.
1: Bye-bye.
2: Welcome
0: back. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Bill Poundstone. If you enjoyed the interview, just a reminder, his latest book, Priceless, The Myth of Fair Value and How to Take Advantage of It. available at all bookstores and on amazon especially through our amazon widget go ahead pick it up it's a good read also while we're on the topic of books just want to let everybody know we do
1: still have some books we're giving away i just sent five out last friday or thursday so a couple of lucky people who had written in will be getting those i sent one to vincent from facebook he's overseas and he's teaching english and everything and he wrote us a really nice thing so we sent him one and hit us up on on facebook you know go on there like us leave us a post tweet about us send us an email go on itunes whatever you want to do and we try to say thank you for listening by sending you whatever we can you know whatever books we have in if you request one or anything like that so thanks for being a fan thanks for tuning in be back next week for something else that's going to be just as interesting i can promise you that
0: peace out potters Peace out.